And now let's read together. Let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm number 95 on page 602 if you're using the church Bible. Psalm number 95. And we will think together about the God who is King. Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath, in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Okay, so this is the the summary and the climax of where as a church we've been for the last 10 weeks. Uh, We've been following the outline of a book called None Like Him, uh, written by a lady called Jen Wilkin, uh, exploring uh, some of the the qualities, the characteristics of God uh, that mark him out as truly unique. Uh, So we thought about God who has no limits. He cannot be contained or measured. The God who can be truly known but never fully known because uh, our minds cannot comprehend his infinite greatness. Uh, We thought about a God who is self-existent, who is fully self-sufficient. Unlike us who depend on so many different people, God depends on no one. We reflected on the God who is eternal and unchanging. The God who possesses all wisdom and power, who occupies all space. And all along the way, we've been seeing God is unlike us in those qualities, and that's a good thing for us, and it leads us logically to this final truth. Since that's who God is, therefore it stands to reason, and it's good news, that God is King. The God of the Bible is presented to us as the king who has every right to sit on the throne of the universe, and more personally for us, who has the right to the devotion and worship of every human heart. And the Bible is given to us as God's word to reveal his identity, to reveal his works to us, so that we would respond to him appropriately. One of the things 
uh, that we would have been taught as children, I'm sure, and one of the things that we as parents teach our children is to recognize and then respect authority figures. So it begins at the home children to respect mum and dad, but then also teachers and the police and the various authorities uh, that make up our society. We recognize uh, and we treat them in the appropriate manner. Now, I don't know if any of you, some of you I know, have done uh, the course called Christianity Explored. There's, there's a story that, that Rico Tice, who kind of re- re- uh, narrates uh, that course, he tells of being uh, at a posh London dinner party, um, and he's waiting in a, a lobby, waiting to be welcomed into uh, the room as one of the guests, and he's standing there uh, in the lobby with another fellow guest, and so he says, you know, for 10 minutes or so, there's a little bit of awkward chit-chat, and then they fall into a sort of semi, in his part, uncomfortable silence. Um, and he said he had this incredible shock when it struck him after the event, that the person he was in the lobby with was none other than Prince William. His future king was there not more than a couple of meters away from him, but he didn't recognize it, and he felt really sad that he'd missed the chance uh, to speak to his prince, the one who would be king. Now, those kind of stories are amusing, mistaken identity. It's not a big deal, but when it comes to God, it's tragedy. If we reflect on God as he's revealed in the Bible and it doesn't move our hearts to worship and obedience, then that's tragic. If we discover in the Bible the story of Jesus, God's son and God's king, and it doesn't move us to worship, then that is a tragedy. To give him anything less than all the devotion of our hearts is to miss the whole point of life. We are creatures. He is the creator We were created in order to be worshipping beings, to know him, to enjoy him, and to bring glory to him. We owe our lives to him. Every good gift that we enjoy comes from him. All the security that we have is a gift from him. And he offers to us true life, true love, and true joy that comes from knowing him through Jesus, his son, our saviour. So let's think together about what this psalm uh, says to us about the God who is King. I want to concentrate first on verses 3 to 5, where we really have the statement that God is King, and to recognize that this is both the message and the mission of God's church, of God's people. So let's just read those verses together again. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Okay, so this is Psalm 95, and it's part of a wider section. Psalms 93 to 100 uh, form a collection known as the the Royal Psalms. Uh, The big idea being that over against the idols of the nations... Uh, And over against human independence and rejection of God, God stands alone as the one true king. People may try and resist him or reject him uh, or ignore him, but that does not alter the fact that God reigns and rules as king. It's the point of verse 3. Over against any false gods, 
over against anything that we might consider worthy of our devotion, the God of the Bible is infinitely greater, higher, and more worthy. He is in a class of his own. And part of the way that the psalmist develops that in verses 4 and 5 goes back to the creation story uh, using this wonderful imagery to say that our world is both, in verse 5, handcrafted, his hands formed the dry land, and handheld. Here is the God who holds the oceans, the depths of the earth, in his hand. Our almighty God, the King, makes and sustains everything. So compared to any human king or any human government that have some limited power, and even that power is God-given, here we are presented with God alone as the true king, the one creator God with absolute authority over everything and every one. Now, for some people today, I guess that would generate a level of suspicion towards God in a culture and society where authority isn't always approved of. What does the psalmist think uh, about God as king? Well, he celebrates because he knows that unlike human powers and human kings who can sometimes use their power to abuse others, God's rule is never harmful. We studied the goodness of God. We studied the wisdom of God. We studied the unchanging, loving nature of God. So trusting in this God is security, not fear. Living under His rule is safe and good for us because ultimately it's what we were made for. And so the message of the church and the mission of the church is to announce that God is king and to live under his rule, to bring God's kingdom on the earth. And that was the story from the very beginning. Look back in Genesis with Adam and Eve. God, in his creative goodness, supplied them with everything good that they needed for life, including a perfect relationship with himself, that God met with them and God spoke with them, and God entrusted to them care for the earth and rule over the earth. They were to be under God as stewards, under his good and loving rule, and spreading that good and loving rule in the way that they acted. But then sin came and all of that was disrupted when they decided, no, we want to have that God-like status for ourselves. We want to decide what good and evil looks like. But God wasn't finished there. God then chose out of his own sovereign goodness the nation of Israel. And Israel discovered God as the true king who was far, far greater than Pharaoh. We read of that in the book of Exodus. God works these mighty miracles to show he's a greater king than Pharaoh, that he's a, a superior god to the false gods of Egypt. And God eventually set the people of Israel free. He redeemed the nation. Why? So that they would live as God's people under God's good and loving rule. And as the people lived under God's rule, 
their lifestyle, their worship, their laws were intended to be God's light shining in the darkness. That the other nations were to look in and say, there's something good and true and life-giving about Israel's God, Israel's king. I want that. And they were to draw people in. But sadly, as we read the Old Testament, we discover a history uh, where Israel often engaged in idolatry themselves, where they chose time and again to reject God as king, and where instead they pursued alternative gods and saviors. But again, God was not done. What about in the New Testament age? Well, in the New Testament age, Jesus came into the world announced as God's Christ, his anointed one, his chosen king. And Jesus comes to bring in the kingdom of God as God's king. And so he performs these mighty deeds, these miracles, as signposts of his glory and also signposts of his coming kingdom. And when Jesus calmed storms and got rid of diseases and raised the dead, he was giving people a picture of what life would be like when he came again to renew all things. A picture of hope. And Jesus called the church to pray and to pursue your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Calling us to submit to his rule, calling others to come under the good and loving rule of Jesus, our King. And when we read the Gospels, how is Jesus presented? He's presented to us as the perfect King, perfect in his obedience. Where even the best of kings like King David, uh, they failed morally and spiritually. Jesus never did. He is the truly obedient King. He's also presented, of course, as our suffering and dying King representing his people there on the cross, taking our sin on his shoulders, paying the price to set us free so we might live once again under God's good rule as God's people. And then he's presented to us as our resurrected king, that death was not the end. He won that decisive victory over the powers of darkness, and now he's returned to the glory of heaven as the exalted king. So today, Jesus rules as King of kings and Lord of lords, and and the church awaits Jesus, our returning King, that one day he's going to come and get rid of sin forever, make everything new, including his people, so that we might live with him in perfect love and joy. So this is our message and our mission, that Jesus is God's King. He is the only way to know God. He is the only way to live under the good and loving rule of God. And so our summons, uh, the gospel summons, is turn to him. Turn to Jesus, God's King. Submit your life to him. Pursue faith in him and enjoy the gift of eternal life. So God is King. That's our message. That's our mission. What about how do we respond uh, according to this psalm? Well, because God is the king, we should respond with joyful worship. We see that from the beginning, Psalm 95, verse 1. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. 
Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Psalm 95, throughout the history of the church, has often been used as a call to worship, to recognize the worth of God the King and to praise him with joy. I wonder if we've ever stopped to think, why is it uh, in the Christian church that we are a, a church that sings? Why are we a singing religion? What is it about God's kingship, God's rule that causes joy and song in our hearts rather than anxiety? What is it that gives us hope and assurance rather than fear? What is it about the rule of God that can allow us to rest in his arms rather than resisting him or fearing him? It's because the God of the Bible is a God of love and a God of grace. And God's love and God's grace frees us from that great temptation that Adam and Eve fell into, the temptation for ourselves to play God, to try and save ourselves, to try and be our own kings, our own lords and rulers. Perhaps you are familiar with the poem Invictus, by William Henley, or more likely, if you're like me, you'll know the only two lines that anybody ever seems to know of that poem, where he says, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. Now that's a a sentiment that's hugely celebrated uh, today, Uh, and Prince Harry has the Invictus Games, that's a wonderful celebration of of human spirit, but taken to uh, its extreme... It sees us trying to dethrone God because we want that central place in our own stories. And we can see that since the Garden of Eden, men and women and boys and girls have been fighting for that throne, denying God his proper place of rule in our hearts and in our lives. But not so with the psalmist here. What has the psalmist discovered about God the King that serves as the antidote to that grasping for power? What can he say to us to help us submit gladly and joyfully to God as King? Three ideas. First one, in verse number one, the psalmist says, Let us shout aloud to the rock. To the rock. We worship, we serve a a king who provides security. Because a rock speaks of unchanging strength, speaks to us of stability. It speaks of a hiding place from danger. We know this in the city. We can think about uh, Castle Rock and Edinburgh Castle on the top. That's the image. When life spirals out of control for us, when we realize life is beyond our ability to manage or control, we can hear God say, we can hear Jesus say to us, just as he said to his disciples, do not be afraid, for the I am is with you. If we have this God as our king, we have true security, and when we have that, we can rest. Or like Jesus said towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that that him and his words are like a solid rock that we are to build our lives on so that no matter what storm comes, even the storm of God's judgment, we will stand. 
because our lives are rooted on Jesus, the King. So the psalmist will say to us that that knowing the the unchanging, the all-powerful, the all-wise, the ever-present, the unlimited God of the universe, knowing Him and knowing He's for you, that's a unique source of security, far greater than money in the bank, relationship, career, status, any of those things. So this king provides security, but this king also provides salvation. Again in verse 1, now there's this invitation to shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. So again, let's imagine just for a moment the Israelites gathering through the generations to sing uh, this song, this song of faith, and they could look back and remember, for example, all those miracles in Egypt, the way Pharaoh was defeated so decisively at the Red Sea. They could remember uh, God providing for them uh, in the wilderness. They could look uh, a bit further forward in their history to think about the conquest of Canaan, that God had promised them a land where they would dwell uh, with him. Uh, And the tiny nation of Israel, with God's help, was able to defeat nations much stronger than them because God fought for them. Or they could think about the judges, the judges that God raised up in answer to the people's prayer when they were facing oppression and opposition, and the people cry out, God sent judges, and they were empowered by God's Spirit to secure freedom for that generation. They could think about the great King David, his defeat of Goliath, his defeat of the nations, expanding the territory of Israel, defending the borders, and all the while doing that as God's King. It's an invitation to reflect on God's acts of salvation. What about for us? Our hope, our rest, our joy is also found in a king who saves. And for us, his name is Jesus. Jesus means God saves. Think with me for a moment about the criminal um, who died with Jesus on the cross. Remember that story, Jesus is hanging there, and he's suffering, and he's dying, and the people are mocking him, and there's large-scale rejection. Uh, But one of the criminals dying there with him said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You can look on this dying man and recognize that he is utterly different to him, that he is, in fact, God's king. And Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. That for Jesus, the cross meant victory. Yes, it looked like defeat, but it it meant victory. It meant salvation. The cross is where our king enters into conquest against his enemies. The cross is where Jesus defeats Satan and the powers of sin and death, securing for us forgiveness and new life and freedom as the children of God. And all of that coming as a gift of His grace to be received by faith. So we are a church that sings, sings with joy, because we have a rock who is our Savior. And this King, He's not just our security, He's not just our Savior. Verses 6 and 7, Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God And we are the people of his pasture, the flock 
under his care. This king, this mighty, powerful king, is our shepherd. God deliberately in the Bible chose the image of shepherd uh, to speak of his uh, kingly care and his personal care, of his feeding his people, guiding his people, protecting his people, sustaining them. And so it's no surprise then when Jesus uh, comes and he picks up that same imagery in John 10 declaring, I am, title for God, the good shepherd, the one who lays down his life for his people, the one who goes out to search for his people to bring them home, the one who will ensure that none of his people are lost. And so the psalm is helping us to see that trusting this king, living gladly under his rule, is for our ultimate good. Yes, sometimes authority and power is abused, but not by God the king, not by Jesus our king. And that's good news for us personally, you know, when we, when we find times of sadness come. We're confused by the circumstances that come into our lives. Or we're wrestling to make a wise decision. In all of those moments and in all points in life, we know that we are not on our own. That our eternal, self-sufficient, unlimited God and Savior is the shepherd who comes alongside us. And therefore, the psalmist says to us, trust and love and worship are, are the logical response to this God. To this king. But there's another response uh, that we are called to uh, from the second part of verse 7 down to verse 11. We're called to respond by hearing with faith. As we read, you probably noticed the tone of the psalm changing. Gone is the exuberant joy. Now we're left with a stark warning from Israel's past history. Today, second point of verse 7, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. So here's the somber reality for us. It is entirely possible to see the power and the glory of the eternal king and to be utterly unmoved by it. This generation that's been referred to, they saw all the miracles of God in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet their hearts did not warm to God. They did not gladly respond to him as king. Israel had been set free. They'd been moved out of slavery in Egypt by God's power, with God himself leading them, and yet we find them testing God, quarreling against God, grumbling against God, testing him, refusing to take him at his word. A generation marked by a horrible unbelief. Now, it'd be really easy uh, to judge them and dismiss them and say, well, that was awful, but we would never do the same. But it makes sense for us to reflect because the psalmist says to us we need to reflect so that we can learn from that negative example so in our own lives 
to greater and lesser extent, we have seen, we have heard of what God the King has done for us. The Bible speaks of God as creator, God as sustainer, the God who gives us every good gift, and the one who sent Jesus to be our Lord and our Savior. But yet, is faith always our first response? If we're honest with ourselves, I imagine we discover that we too can be slow to listen. We can be stubborn to change. We can be resistant to God's rule, to God's authority. We can be hard-hearted when faced with the glory of God our King. So the psalm poses a question to us. Do I respond to God with faith and obedience? Which voice do I listen to? The one that calls us to sing and to rest and rejoice in God? Or the voice within us that wants to be God-like? There is an urgent call here today if you hear his voice. Don't grumble against him. Don't test him. Instead, hear with faith so that you might enter God's rest. See verse 11? So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. That's what it's, what's at stake here. God's rest equals God's salvation. It means God and his people together. For them, that was represented by the promised land. For us, that's eternal glory. Jesus, our King, came to secure our salvation, our rest for us. Do we respond to him with faith and obedience? Do we find rest in him, rest from struggling to to be our King, to try and be master of our own fate? Instead, to submit to him, to trust him, to follow his way and not ours. Do we trust in Jesus and turn to him and rest from struggling to secure our identity? Because the Bible is clear that when we trust in Jesus, we become children of God. He delights in us. That's who we are. We are redeemed sons and daughters of the King. We don't need to fight to earn our salvation. We don't need to struggle to prove ourselves. God already approves of us when our faith is in Jesus. And there is rest, therefore, from worrying about our future. Christianity presents assurance. Not because of our work, not because of our faith, but who our faith is in. We can have assurance when we're trusting entirely on what Jesus did for us at the cross through his resurrection and what he's doing for us now as our king. He has secured the future glory for his people, which is true rest. This is our king, our security, our savior, our shepherd. The one who we are called to respond to with joy and to hear with faith. So as our series on on the character of God comes to a close, the question facing all of us is, will you and I entrust our lives to Jesus, God's King? Will we live for His glory and know His joy?
Let's pray.